Welcome to the Peer Podcast. I'm Peter DiCaprio. Today, my conversation with Rosalind Taylor O'Neill. For more than 30 years, she's been leading learning in over 48 countries across five continents. Rosalind is currently a principal consultant at Cook Ross, designing global diversity and inclusion strategic initiatives and leading workshops, seminars, and leadership development programs. Rosalind has been named one of the top 100 most influential blacks in corporate America, one of the top executives in diversity, one of the 100 top executives in America, and one of the 100 most influential LGBT people of the year. Our conversation focuses on her experiences and what whites can do to specifically dismantle racism. You know, I was born in 1950 in the South. Um, So I was born into segregation. In 1956, right after Brown versus the Board of Education, I entered an all white school system where I was absolutely not wanted. And so I started this journey early understanding that I was for people, my race first and foremost. Um, In the 60s at 10 and into the mid 60s, I was one of those kids who was out marching. Um, My parents were really good about go march. So I marched with um, Dr. King came several times to churches that, you know, and we'd have huge gatherings. Um, So my my life experience and in the late 60s, I became a black radical. And I saw riots. I was a part of riots. And I thought by 1970 that the world would be different. Um, In the 80s, I moved to Massachusetts. And I remember driving down the street, being at a stoplight in Cambridge, and a car pulled up beside me And the guy just shouted the N-word out his window. And it was startling. Um, But Boston, when I moved there in the 80s, people said, don't go to South Boston. And I said to them, is there like a yellow line, you know, like a sign that says, okay, don't go, (laughs) because I'm good if you tell me exactly. And they were, they said, no, but don't go there. and I, I just spent my life really conscious of being a black person, really conscious of being the only. Um, and so this for me is two things. One, it's fatiguing. I tell people I am tired. Um, this is my third revolution. I'm just exhausted. And I had to get my head around. My first response was, don't protest. And I was actually going to call my grandchildren, who are 25, 25, and 21, and say to them, don't protest. And I realized it was because my fear, which was not based in 2020, 
but it was based in 1970 and 60 was you're going to get killed. Um, so the other thing that I think people need to know about me is I was raised by a police officer. I spent 19 years living with a police officer. All of my father's friends and therefore all of my family friends on my father's side were all black police officers. And so when people talk about policing and police and getting rid of police and things, I have a, I have a, a personal and an intellectual place that I have to sort of bring together because intellectually, I do understand that the system is completely broken and it's a system set up to do whatever it wants. And when my father died, uh, my father was 92 and out at the grave site were 90 year old police officers. And my niece arranged for him to get a seven gun salute. So we had police officers and, and I have a very different sense. And those are things that are true about me that kind of bring me here to today. Hmm. One thing just in case, because sometimes it's important to be explicit about these things. I'm assuming your father was black. You actually yes. never said he was black, his friends yes. were. Yes. And I think it's yeah, a reasonable assumption, um, you being a black woman, and sometimes it's good to ask. Yes. You know, we get into yes. those habits. Absolutely. When we discuss doing this, what you mentioned was what you'd like to hear from white people, yes. and, and then with the word in capital, what you'd like to see from white people. Yes. And I want to I want to talk about that. And yes. there's a lot of talk now about structural racism and policing mm -hmm. that you could go into and we could go into. Um, there's a lot out there. Um, anyone who doesn't believe we probably couldn't convince them otherwise in this right. conversation, though, if yes. anyone could, Rosalind. So is before we get into what you'd like to see and hear. Is there anything about structural racism that you think you'd like to say in context of this conversation so that we have some of that? Yes. Structural racism is, it, it strikes me as it's like a spider web. Everything is connected. Um, health care, health disparities, are connected to crime. They are connected to um, food uncertainty. They are connected to education. They're connected to policing. We sometimes seem to talk about structural racism like it's a building. And if you take the building down, then it's gone. And it's not like a building, it's like a web. It's like a very thickly woven web that when you go to sleep at night, you wake up in the morning and it's twice the size it was. 
and it's connected in so many ways. It is interdependent upon all of its parts. So I think about it as the way you would take down a web, and that is piece by piece by piece, that you can't take the whole thing down because it remains. It's not a building. You can't blow it up. And it involves all of us in ways that are connected to our privilege. So I am an educated black woman and structural racism allows me to do things that my uneducated black sister can't do. It's, that's the insidiousness of it. It allows so many of us to do things that it doesn't allow others and it's hard for us to even see it. It's every day, everywhere. When I think about structural racism I, or systemic racism, I like to remind myself and anyone who listened that most of it actually happens through people. Yes. And one of the first realizations I had as a, an adult white male who was kind of um, liberal light, um, never owned slaves, so I wasn't part of the problem. Right. Um, was that I had been mobilized by this kind of, by my education and training and my worldview into committing, you know, acts of interpersonal and structural racism. Yes. And I like when I talk about structural racism, I like to remind myself that it happens through people. Yes. And even when the policies are a certain way, if the people enacting those policies were not enacting some form of unconscious bias or conscious racial animus, yes. then it still wouldn't happen a lot that's of right. time. That's right. And that's one of the challenges when we think about things like structural racism inside our policing system. It is both policies, the way in which um, there, there are legal protections, and it's Joe on the street. It's the police officer who teaches other police officers that if someone is knocked down, the 75-year-old man, to not stop, not pick him up, and to move forward. And it's not just his actions, the person who shoved him, it's what he teaches the others about the event. It's the three men who stood by while the life was sucked out of George Floyd. It's not just the man with his knee on his neck. It's the three men and it's also the 10 people who watched it. There, that that it's our 
It's our individual story that we make up about what's going on. I have a, an analogy. A number of years ago, I was about to talk to a group of senior managers, about 350 senior managers in Texas. And I had a meeting with the CEO beforehand. Wonderful guy. I'll call him Bill. And I went into the keynote speech. And I said to them, here's the problem. So now, if Bill was up here, and as he was presenting the financials, he said, you know, one of the things that we're looking at are what are our financial numbers? And he suddenly um, cleared his throat and turned and spit on the floor. So now, if Bill did that today, all 350 of us in this room would have a moment of something is wrong with Bill. So now understand there is no human resource, no HR policy, no place in the policy manual does it say, do not spit on the floor. And yet people don't. <laughs> they don't just do it. You know, I said, but if Bill did it, and no one said anything because Bill is your CEO. And then he did it in the meeting a couple of days later, another meeting, two meetings, week later. Within a year, spitting on the floor would be a common occurrence. Hmm. Because the individuals take their cues and because there's no policy, the organization is saying, that's not something we care about. And that's the challenge with this work. It is the individual. Because the first time he did it, individuals would say, Bill, are you okay? A month later, they would spit on the floor. And that's what we do. And we do it at the individual level and we perpetuate it at the individual level. And as long as um, the cost doesn't outweigh the benefit, why change? The cost of black men being choked to death, the cost of black women being shot wasn't high enough until people started running through the streets. Hmm. And then organizations said the cost is high enough. I, I am concerned about what we have, what we have done in the diversity and inclusion and equity and accessibility space mm. in the last 30 years. In 1980, at Digital Equipment Corporation, Barbara Walker formed what were called core groups. They were 12 to 15, 16 executives, head of manufacturing, head of engineering. And they came together they were probably 90 plus percent white. 
and of the whites, 95% male. They agreed to come together once a month for a day or a half day for 18 months to understand their, their challenges around power, their challenges around bias, their challenges around stereotypes, all of their behaviors, their belief systems. We are now at two hours, three hours. And I don't believe, I don't believe, Peter, that white men, white women can get an understanding of what life is like for me in two hours, mm. in four hours. Mm. At MTV Networks, we had the CEO, Tom Freston, gave me eight executives two black women, one white woman, five white men. And for 20 months, for 12 months, I taught them. We met individually once a week. We met as a group once a month. And then for eight months, they taught others. I was on a call with seven of the eight of them about a month ago. Mm. This was in 2003 and 2004. So we're talking 16 years ago. Today, they will tell you they are forever changed by that experience and are leaders in building organizations that we're talking about whiteness is a part of the conversation. We're talking about power, the power they have, where they are viewed by people who don't even know how they got there as having something radically different about, especially the five white men, radically different about them and the white woman to the point where people have said to them, how did you get here? Mm. And I say, it's an investment in learning. You have been learning for how long? At this point, it's approaching 20 years. As an adult, I came to kind of multiculturalism and started what, you know, in earnest, really looking at, at this stuff. Yeah. 20 years. And so if you think about, okay, my father was a police officer for 30 years. And he had 30 years of being in an institution that told him that black people were criminals. My father, an African-American man, a dark-skinned African-American man, that 
black people were criminals and he believed it. And he saw black people first as criminals and secondly as the guy sitting in the pew next to him in the Episcopal church, the woman coming out of the store. Hmm. And that's how deeply it rests in us as black people and in you as white people. And that's why it is serious work. It's, it's not a, it's not a workshop. Hmm. It is a commitment for me to ask myself, to what extent do I buy into creating um, inequity with and for others? And it's looking at it. And, you know, it's not pleasant. I'm sure you know. It is mm -hmm. just not a, you know, you don't get up and go, you know what I want to do today? I want to discover all of the ways in which I create, I su support, I sustain systemic isms. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's daily work. Well, I can say from my personal experience that it's work today. Yes. Right? Like I've, I've just kind of rattled off this 20 years, but it's work like managing my identity and how I see things is work today. Yes. I'm lucky enough that I've, that, at, at least I seem to want to do the work today. Yes. But it is, it remains work. Oh, it does. Yeah. It does. And it, you know, and I tell people it remains work for me when I think about the whole able-bodied. I am an able-bodied, mm. temporarily able-bodied person. And if I don't think about it mm. every day, I will in fact perpetuate a system mm -hmm. that is absolutely unjust for the last 10 years we in this country in my experience as a black woman said we will not even mention the word race in inclusion and diversity and equity conversations hmm. we will not mention it people said no we're going to talk about diversity of thought I said, well, yes, we can talk about visible and invisible. Oh, we're going to talk about diversity of style. We are not going to talk about race. And now we have leaders and organizations, and I liken it to it's a muscle you haven't used for 10 years. Mm. Now you got to start with five pound weights. You can't lift 50 pounds. Mm. You yeah. got to start with five pound weights because the muscle atrophied and you're scared as, you know, as white men and white women, you're frightened mm -hmm. and you want to go pick up a 50 pound weight. And I say, you don't have it. And I am, I'm a little pissed off. Mm. Um, because because not talking about race feels like it it erases my experiences i i 
always felt, how can you not talk about something that I get up with every day? I live in a very small town in um, Western Maryland. And when I first started, um, my now wife, who I was dating at the time, um, was living in a, um, a house, you know, renting part of a house. I went on a business trip, I come back, and out the kitchen window is a barn that has now been painted with a Confederate flag. It is the size of the back of a barn, not a flag. I am telling you, and it could have been fabric, I didn't want, but it was an entire barn covered with a Confederate flag. Wow. And so I say to her, Every time I get to the edge of our driveway, my being black, and I, I have lots of privilege and I have lots of resources. I am, I have a message and a notion that white people just don't understand. She said to me the other day, but nothing bad has happened to you here. And I said to her, oh, that's not true. The stress of waiting, the stress of knowing, it's always just a quarter of an inch, is every day damaging to my body it creates a set of hormones that white people don't even know happens. I'm in a workshop with a DNI leader and he's telling a story about something he heard and he uses the N word and he doesn't use the N word. He says the word mm. in his story because the person said it. Mm -hmm. And I have this moment and I don't think it's wise, whatever the story I tell myself is, it is not wise to stand up and go, what is wrong with you? You are a DNI leader. You are a diversity and inclusion and equity expert. It actually happened two more times before I finally, not in public, <clears throat> right outside the room said, you can never use that word again. And I cannot believe you've used it three times in front of audiences. And it never dawned on you that, and that's what I live with daily is that mm. that will happen. If mm. that can happen with an inclusion leader, white male, it can happen anywhere. How did he take it? Oh, he, he took it. Um, he took it really liberally. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, oh, my God, I can't. Uh, well, um, I won't ever do that again. I I'm not sure why I did that. Hmm. I say, I want you to think about why you did that. You did that because you could. 
mm. because of the power that you had as this leader. Mm-hmm. And you did it because you are, in fact, known to be a liberal, thoughtful, um, Black Lives Matter guru. And that's why you did it. And you need to understand that not only did you do it, but you didn't even hear yourself doing it. Mm. So we, we got... We got through it. (laughs) (laughs) He might be still thinking about it, hopefully. Yes. Um, In that moment, what would be a good response from from him? What's the response that you would like to hear and see from him in that situation? First, I am sorry. I am sorry that I caused you pain that I can't even imagine. I have to do a lot of work because I evidently have a huge blind spot and I, I am sorry. I, can't imagine how you can forgive me. I and I do want you at some point to give me that. Mm. I know that I have to do my own work. I've got to sit on the couch on the front porch, at the beach, and ask myself, what are all the things that led me to do that without it even being something I thought about? And I am going to ask not only you, but people who care about me, people who look like me and people who don't look like me. Where else has this shown up? How has it shown up? I'm gonna go back to people and say to them, I realize I might have said and likely have, and I wanna know Where did it show up? Because I need to figure out how that happens. I need to be able to say, it happens because I don't listen to myself before I do something or say something. Because I don't see you Because if I see you as a black person and not as a colleague or participant or uh, someone who works for me or someone, if I don't see you, Rosalind, as a black person, I don't think to myself, how am I being as a white person with this black person? So it's interesting. So that's a, 
what what I hear is that like a plan for someone to move forward from that because it's kind of so that was a long apology <laughs> and and I and I like it in that situation when I've been in that situation I try to make it as kind of as little about me as I can right so I and the but that what what I've what I get from that is that's an actual little program that someone, when they've been confronted with uh, something that they've done, um, when they've well, uh, when they've been confronted with a a racist statement, mm -hmm. can actually stop and follow to work through and grow through right. that mistake. Right, and so it starts at, I apologize for mm. pain that I have just caused you. I can't imagine how much it was, mm. but I need you to know I am really sorry. Mm. It's not an excuse. It is an awful thing that I have done. Mm. And then, see, I don't need you to tell me what you're gonna go do. Mm. I need you to go do it, mm -hmm. okay? So I don't need you to say to me, well, you know, I'm going to think about this. I don't give two shits what you do. Mm. In truth, I need you to go do it. Mm. And if you want to come back to me and say, here's what I'm doing. Because I believe in the value of diversity and you think of things I can't think of, what am I missing? Where else have I? When I ask, when I talk about what white people can do, it is behaviorally change your damn behavior. Okay. Mm -hmm. Don't use the N word. Don't use it. If you're singing a song, <laughs> don't use it with your good friends. Cause if you don't take it out of your brain, it'll come out in some odd places. And not only do I have to say as a, do I want white people to say, what got me there? What information am I missing mm. that made it possible? Mm -hmm. I want them to ask other white people the same questions. Mm. I want them to say to other white people, I use the N word. I want them to say to other white people like you, because this person knows you. I want them to call you up and go, Peter, white guy to white guy, DNI leader to DNI leader. This is something I said. And I'm trying to look at all the things that lead me here. Mm. And if I did it, I want you and I to talk about how do we unpack this? Because um, power shows up in the words I can say, and it rises to, I can, um, I can include or exclude you. Mm -hmm. I, can, I can open doors of opportunity that not only can you not open, you don't even see them. 
because mm-hmm. they're hidden. There is a button. There's a code. You know, mm-hmm. Peggy McIntosh in 78 says it's a co- that the invisible weightless knapsack mm-hmm. of privilege has codes. So mm-hmm. I don't even realize that I have to use my power to get those codes, not only to open the door, but to give you the code mm. so that when I'm not there, you can still get in. That's what the do is. Mm. The do is not sit around and pick lint out of your navel. Yeah. It certainly isn't go to every black person or every non-white person, you know, whatever, whatever <laughs> member, whatever group that you're trying to, you know, is a member of the group you're trying to grow into not enacting your privilege with to not say, hey, like, Teach me all of this. I'm, oh. I'm here. I'm ready. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because you know what we are thinking. Yeah. Okay. Which is, I'm done teaching you. Mm. It's, it's sort of like, um, if your 12-year-old came to you and said, um, Mom, will you teach me to walk? You're like, you are walking. <laughs> you are 12. That job is yeah. done. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one way I see power show up it, when when we whites decide when we choose to actually take action around race is we bring the solution. So Rosalind and I, we're going to, you and I, we're going to work together on race. Here's what we're going to do. Yes. Right. Yes. I mean, I have to assume that in your life you've had uh, relationships uh, work, you know, with white people around this issue that have worked for you. Yes. Can you tell me about some of those, what, what's present in those relationships and how yeah. they how it work? And, and two CEOs come to mind. Now, you know, that's, that's I mean, these are, I'm talking powerful men. Mm-hmm. That's not what I was expecting. I was expecting. I know. Yeah, yeah. I know. And they are very different men. Um, Tom Freston made shoes and sold shoes in Afghanistan before he got run out of Afghanistan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, before he came back and came up with my MTV, mm-hmm. that was the CEO of MTV networks. Mm-hmm. And because he lived his life in a place where he experienced his whiteness as the advantages that it gave him and the disadvantages that it gave him. He actually could see race. Mm. He called me to say, I looked out at my leadership team and I said to myself, what the, he said, I thought we can't do the work we need to do in this form. And that just is not, he said, I just, saw it. And he said, by the way, um, I know there are things that I do and have done to perpetuate inequality. And I need to have it pointed out. And then I need to go fix it. I don't need you to fix it because you mm-hmm. actually can't fix it. Mm-hmm. But you can point it out because mm-hmm. I know I miss things. Mm-hmm. He said, first of all, I want to know why it took me a year and a half <laughs> to go, shit, they're all white. Mm. The other. I'm, I'm going to pa- ask you to pause for one second because there's one thing I want to point out in this story. 
So this was the CEO of MTV Networks. What was your role at MTV? He said to me. No, what, what job did you have? Yes, I was the executive vice president of diversity and inclusion. So you were actually getting paid. Oh, to be really there well. present for him in his racial awareness development. Yes. I want to point that out. You were being paid for that. It wasn't free labor that you were being asked to no. do. No, great. Yes. No, paid really well. Good, good. <laughs> yes. The other was the CEO at the time that I took the job of the Campbell Soup Company, and that's Doug Conan. They are as different a men as you can imagine. Both white, both tall. <laughs> both relatively thin. Doug was about behavior. Um, Doug said, the only way that I can make change happen is if we talk about it at every opportunity. So he said, every meeting that I lead, town hall, staff meeting, C-suite meeting, every meeting will begin, not end, will begin with 10 to 15 minutes around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Everyone. And that's what we'll do. Mm. And we will, we will learn together. Mm. We will talk about it. And he said to his team, his C-suite, you will begin every meeting. I was the chief diversity and inclusion officer for the Campbell Soup Company. Mm. Once again, not free labor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well paid. And, and the, for him, it was, it's interesting. Um, Doug had a, had a, a fundamental belief that people do what you do, they don't do what you say. Mm. That if people are supported, they will do immeasurably positive things with you. And he said, this is not something we can talk about twice a year. Because as I've said to CEOs, if you talked about the financials twice a year, just twice a year, okay, uh, 90 minutes, twice a year, financial day, how well would you do? He said, we talk about finances, we talk about safety, we talk about products, we're going to talk about diversity and inclusion. Mm. It reminds me of the spitting on the floor story. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think that this is so complex. When I said to you, it's a web. So it's, it's people I love. I mean, you know, you, you only want to work on the people you love so much. I mean, you know, <laughs> people you love <laughs> and live with, you know, really. mm -hmm. uh, it's people I respect. It's people who make decisions about my life. You know, we're building um, conversations and people are saying, we want to bring together black people so they can kind of talk. 
and and then we want to have we want to know kind of that's going to be what we're going to do and i say mm -hmm. you need to bring together white people because mm -hmm. if you don't bring together white people to talk and you only bring together black people to talk mm -hmm. it sort of says this is a group that has a problem otherwise you wouldn't bring, bring them together yeah. and as long as i'm the problem mm. That is how systemic racism continues to send out another thread. Yeah. Oh, there's the problem. So when we whites are getting together, and I'll let you, like I've, I've run some white affinity groups or white caucuses in the past couple of weeks. There's, there's a, of course, an urgency around it, which, <laughs> uh, which is its own phenomenon. Yes. But I would love to hear from you what what those white spaces should what should you be hearing and seeing in those white spaces right now <laughs> well here's what y'all ought to do <laughs> yeah that's i mean that's that's what i want to hear so of course it's a mixed thing because <laughs> There's so that's the, that's like the most white liberal response is all right. I'm going to ask you, Rosalind, black woman, tell us what to do, right? Like that's right, right. now. That's about as evolved as we can be, right? Right for for a lot of us. And um, so one thing that in my groups I focus on is we're going to focus on our whiteness. We're not going to we're not going to fix for racism just yet. We're not right. going to jump. Here's here's our solution. That's right. <laughs> right. So we're going to focus on whiteness and what that means and not just privilege, but whiteness, its history and yes. how we how it how our whiteness is a lot. Yes. And we don't see ourselves. Yes. So that's just to give you a sense of where I'm coming from with it. And you 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 kind of signed up for. Yes. Uh, you know, yes. so I, I, I mean, I at the same yeah. time, too, we need to elevate voices like yours who are willing and in a space to. So if you want me to just, we don't have to talk about it at all, but I, oh, I no, want to hear what you have to say. We're going to talk yeah. about it because Great. it is a both and. Mm -hmm. Yes, the question is, tell us what to do. What would you like to see? What? Right. Yeah. And I will say to you, where you start is exactly what you talk about, which is you have to develop and understanding at your core that you are white and what that means and how that shows up and the, the power that it has and the, the necessity to consciously bring it out with you that you can say as a white man, that if someone says, if we're sitting around and we're doing something, that what you talk about in that group is, if someone says, but I don't see color, that you as white people say to them, I am white. Mm -hmm. This is not about color of skin. I have 
an entire personae, external um, life that is influenced by, built by, reinforced by a simple truth, and that is, I am white, and you are white. And I want us to get real comfortable with, I'm white. Hmm. Not, I'm white, but. Because, you know, we, we know that any of the words mm-hmm. that happen after. Mm-hmm. And so we say, I'm white, but. I say, no. Say, I'm white. Put a period there. It's a whole sentence. Okay? You can diagram it. It's a sentence. It's a legitimate <laughs> sentence. It's a complete sentence. It's a complete sentence. Okay? <laughs> it doesn't require any other phrases to go with it. True story. I'm at MTV Networks. We have groups that we're setting up, executive groups. So we had an executive um, uh, group of people of color. We had an executive group of LGBT. At that time, it was LGBT as opposed to LGBTQI. And I set up a group called White Women. And white women said, I can't, I can't, that, that title won't work. I said, why? And they said, well, we're women. I said, white. White. I, I'm bringing you together because you are white. You're white women executives in the same way that people of color executives, LGBT ex- uh, executives. And they said, I, I, I'm just not comfortable with that term. I, and I said, um, what term would you prefer? Like women who are white, <laughs> <laughs> women of whiteness, because <laughs> white and women are going to be in this title. And Someone had the nerve to say to me, well, if I had to choose, I wouldn't choose to go to a group of white women. I said, are we just choosing shit we want to do? Because I'm going to be a white guy. I'm not going to lie to you. Smart as I am, if I was a white guy, I'd be rich. Mm. Okay. If we're just going to choose things, that's what I'm going to choose. Now, that's because I've never been a white guy. And so I have this story I've made up about being a white guy. I was... First of all, I never let them off the hook. I said to them, I'm sorry that, first of all, I'm making up the groups. That's the name. Mm. So I put a white woman in charge of it. And she, they, they fought. And finally, they got okay with being white. As long as white people don't say to one another, we are white. Here's what it means to be white. Because then you can go with... If I understand what it means to be white, Mm. and it's more than just, well, I get sunburned, Mm -hmm. I mean, which makes me want to smack somebody, okay? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Then I can create a coalition. Because now you can say, I am white, Rosalind. You are African-American. You are black. And we can come to this from a point of strength. Because I understand what it means to be me. And I can help you to understand what it means to be me. And I can then help you. And you can help me. Because you can come into this as a black person. Not as a almost surrogate white person. Mm. 
or you come into it as a surrogate black person. Somehow or another, we don't come in. That's the work. And it starts at the conversation that happens amongst whites around what does it mean to me, to us, to the organization, to society, to the world for us to be white people. Until white people own their whiteness in collaboration with people of color, black people, but the, but any right. other group, right? Right. We can't actually be partners. Right. We cannot be partners because right. we're not we're not owning an important part of the partnership. Right. And so we can't be partners in change. Mm. We can't be partners in in peeling back the onion of systemic racism. You know, we we got to peel it back layer by layer. We become you've got answers and resources and I'm over here getting smacked around and somehow or another that is never going to work for us. Mm. Okay. And it is looking at your systems. It says white people lead all of our policing systems. And then we get black people to buy into it and Latino people to buy into it. And, mm. but it's, it is, it was built. Policing was built to keep slaves in line. Hmm. That is its history. And they rode on horses because they were big animals. Hmm. And they were sent to keep slaves in line. If you build a system on that, how surprised are you that black men disproportionately are in prisons? By the way, the term white fragility, I'm going to tell you, Hmm. makes me just infuriates me. Hmm. I'm going to now, you know, as somebody who does this work and I always like to get business and all of that, mm-hmm. I still have to tell you mm-hmm. it does. And the reason is it. And I, by the way, I love the book. I think she is right. I think mm-hmm. there's some great stuff in it. Yeah. The phrase. It's like you're fragile. Mm. And we have to be really careful that we don't break you. Mm. And it it feels like um, uh, the title should have been something like from white fragility to concrete. Because mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> people now talk about, you know, remember white fragility. Mm. And it's become a phrase that sort of says, I want to be careful with Peter. So if I'm a black person, which Mm -hmm. I am, Mm -hmm. and I'm talking to you and you say something that makes me want to smack you. (laughs) 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 I have to be really careful because Mm. how I say it to you. Mm -hmm. And that's, that is my, and it just has to do with the word fragility. Mm -hmm. And so I understand that if you don't see yourself as white, There's not a magic wand. And so in some ways, some of the silly stuff that you do makes perfect sense. Mm. And part of my work is 
some of the silly stuff you do makes sense. I'd like for you to notice it. Because if you look at it closely, mm -hmm. it's like picking your nose. If you don't realize that you picked your nose mm -hmm. and somebody says to you, do you know that you do that? And by the way, we have it on videotape. Mm. You go, oh, I think you do great work. I, I, I mean this because um, I can't get white people to see whiteness. Mm. And I want to say it is crucial that you and others continue to fight that fight, continue to do that dance, continue to lead that, because systemic racism keeps us apart by keeping us invisible to one another and not having us see, really see ourselves and therefore able to see another. And so I truly thank you. Rosalind, uh, thank you so much for spending this time with me. Um, I'm really excited to have my audience hear everything you've had to say. Thank you so much. Peter, thank you for having me. Um, I always love spending time with you and I am delighted for it and we'll do it anytime you want. Oh, I've got that. I've got that recorded. Great. Yes. All right. Great. Thanks. Looking thank forward you. to our next conversation. Me too. Me too. This has been a conversation with Rosalind Taylor O'Neill. The Peer Podcast is a production of peermedia.network. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening.